0: (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This is 500 Years, and this is Jeff Till. Uh, It's early August of 2015, and today I thought for this show that we would complain about the government. So this episode's theme is Our Funny Government, and I'm going to pick on a bunch of little Nuancey, crazy government stuff without actually talking about uh, philosophy, economics, or actually saying anything funny. So enjoy. <laughs> Our first topic is fairies and little piles of garbage. I thought if we were going to have our funny government, we had to start with picking on the postal service. It can easily be the easiest target for pointing out the follies of government. Firstly, they're most famous for losing everyone's mail. And now, I don't know if that's true or not, because how would you know? If your mail doesn't come, you just don't know whether you had it in the first place or not. Also, you know, they're kind of uh, slovenly creatures, The, the postal people you know slunk around in their crappy building you know they make people wait in line to talk to some curmudgeon who doesn't really want to be there any more than you do. Another reason we can pick on them is that despite in 2014 according to their own website the US Postal Service reports revenue increases of about 500 million dollars. Still they managed to lose 5.5 billion in the fiscal year of 2014 and this money I presume will either have to be borrowed from the government or just paid off directly uh, from the government using taxpayer money. So that kind of sucks. But really, I want to get more personal than these more abstract or just from a distance type criticisms of the Postal Service. I want to suggest that the Postal Service is like a bunch of magical fairies who every day deliver a little pile of garbage to your house. If you don't believe me, just take a look at your own mailbox. I'm going to ask you to do this analysis for a week every day take your mail and sort it into two different categories one is personal correspondence that's actually meaningful to you or is something that you wanted to receive or something useful like a bill from a company and then in another pile put everything that's a catalog a postcard or other piece of commercial or junk mail I think if you do this you'll see that the pile of personal correspondence providing it's not Christmas time and you're not getting Christmas cards from your grandma will be maybe one, two, five pieces at best. And that's if you're still even just getting your bills sent uh, by paper and not getting this stuff done online. If you look at the pile of catalogs and postcards, though, it will be mountainous in comparison. So essentially what's happening is every day, we pay for people to come to our house and drop off a small piece pile of garbage, which we immediately throw into the garbage can. Now you think, you know, if they were going to be more useful, maybe they could just take the pile of garbage and instead of putting it in your mailbox, just put it directly into your garbage can for you. I also would think that like the environmentalist type people would be pissed off by this since essentially we're just deforesting trees to then hire people to drive around in gas-fueled trucks to then deliver piles of garbage straight to landfill. So really, this makes uh, no sense whatsoever until you sort of think about why they might be doing this. I want to share a story uh, about Outbox that my friend Isaac Morehouse shared with me uh, about a week ago when we were talking about this. Outbox was a venture capital-type startup that had this great idea that they would either collect your mail for you or that you would forward your mail to the company. They would sort through, find what's relevant, throw away the junk mail, and then they would scan the relevant mail to you based on your instruction and email that to you uh, either daily or at the end of the week. That way you could save all of your paper mail that you truly uh, needed to save forever digitally and then you never had to deal with the little pile of garbage that the, the mailman was bringing every day. Now, what happened, and I'm going to read a little bit of a, uh, from an article from InsideSources.com, dated April 2014, is that the Postal Service, the Postal master, really didn't like this idea. He wasn't a big fan of having the little pile of garbage be thrown away. So here I'm going to read a little bit. So when the founders, Evan and Will, got called in to meet the Postmaster General, they were joined by the USPS's General Counsel and Chief of Digital Strategy. Now that's, I'm going to pause right there. That's kind of funny that they would have a chief of digital strategy being that digital is pretty much against everything that they do, maybe except for selling, uh, stamps online. And if I were to guess, and I, I think you'll hear this later, that their chief of digital strategy probably wasn't some, uh, young digital, you know, Google employed, uh, you know, Mount Mastermind of Digital. It was probably just a, an executive uh, in the administrative parts of the Postal Service that just worked there for a really, really long time. They had a title that they had to fill and just gave, you know, this boob the title. So back to the article. Uh, instead uh, of, well, here, I'm, I'm going to extrapolate. They thought they were going to go, and the founders thought that maybe the Postmaster General liked their idea so much that they would uh, bring the service in as a potential revenue source to split with the USPS, also to improve the customer experience because you know, the customers who are receiving mail would be happier to have you know, the more advanced sorting functions and then not get the junk mail. Uh, and then you know, they thought they could actually even save the USPS money uh, through all this because it would probably cut down on physical delivery. So back to the article. But instead, the founder recounts that the US Postmaster General, Patrick Donahoe, he looked at us and said, We have a misunderstanding. You disrupt my service and we will never work with you. Further, you mentioned making the service better for our customers, but the American citizens aren't our customers. About 400 junk mailers are our customers. Your service hurts our ability to serve these customers. According to Evan, the chief of Digital Strategies' comments were even more stark. Your market model will never work anyway. Digital is a fad. It will only work in Europe. Now, wow. I mean, think about that. Digital is a fad. This was written in April of 2014, roughly 20 years after email started gaining mass popularity within the workplace, and probably right around Google started to be adopted. I know when I was working... In 1994, uh, Google took over from what I was using before, which was either Yahoo or, or uh, Metacrawler or Dogpile or something like that. Ancient history. Anyway, isn't that stunning that the chief of digital strategy says that digital is a fad? Digital is a fad. Now, that's stunning, of course. Now, this represents government, which never changes. So that the same method of uh, sorting mail and dropping it off with a person was basically probably invented around the same time that it was written in the Constitution that the USPS would exist. So if you think about this, the little piles of garbage, it turns out, isn't a mistake. It's not thought of of as an eco-hazard or a nuisance or an inefficiency. The little pile of garbage is a business strategy for revenue. Now, I'm not going to advocate that we try to shut down the post office. I think that would be a really terrible idea. You know, if we if we were to do it and put a market solution in its place, it would probably make junk mail totally inviolable. It'd be too expensive to send. And we wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to use like taxpayer money to make sure that the organization that delivers it would be solvent. But the real reason why I don't want to shut down the post office is because if we did, the ex-postal workers would gun us down every time we went to McDonald's. And if we didn't go to McDonald's, they know where every one of us lives. They would surely murder us in our beds. So more about the Postal Service. I know you can't get enough. You probably noticed that just recently that the packages are now being delivered by the USPS on Sunday. And this is pretty amazing. It's it's only Amazon packages and they started in November of 2013 in limited markets. And now I think it's pretty much everywhere, but you probably know this because all of a sudden you received an Amazon package on a Sunday and we're like, wow, look at that. There's a postal worker driving around town delivering packages on their day off. Now what's amazing about this is that you probably didn't hear it from the news. It was almost completely silent. Now, I don't follow the news real closely, but I'm sure this story would have at least popped up on Huffington Post or somewhere. The thing is, is that if someone else of authority, not Jeff Bezos, uh, Amazon CEO, but let's say the president of the United States or the postmaster general uh, had, had dictated that the USPS would have to work on Sunday, There would just be massive outcries. The union leaders and the the union members would all just go completely batshit, saying that this is uh, an affront to workers, it's unfair, it's it's anti-religious probably, it's completely uh, against the rules, and everyone would have been dragged kicking and screaming. In fact, it couldn't have happened. I don't think the president himself has power to make postal workers work on a Sunday, but somehow. Jeff Bezos, perhaps a deity himself, was able to make it happen. Pretty cool. And this might actually be somewhat a saving grace for the USPS who needs to generate as much revenue as possible if they're going to make their pension uh, responsibilities or, or commitments that they made. The other kind of weird part about this is that this was about the same time where the USPS was toying with the idea of canceling Saturday Delivery, and it's sort of it's sort of like anti-economics, where a company could potentially save money or create more profitability by providing less service uh, instead of providing more. And so right there is sort of a grim mirror into how this whole thing, you know, actually operates. It's sort of like the opposite of economics. Okay, so I couldn't resist. I had to go Google search uh, the Amazon USPS deal and see if there was any news articles. And on Salon.com, which I believe is a fairly liberal website, there is a massive uh, diatribe from a disgruntled postal worker who is thoroughly pissed that he's got to work on Sunday. And I'm not going to read the whole article. It's, it's really quite long. Uh, it's from 2015, uh, February 13th. Amazon is killing your mailman. Why its new Sunday service is a labor travesty partner. And so he goes through why this is such a terrible thing and how uh, these CCAs, which are a type of mailman, uh, aren't going to be able to have a day off where they're not going to get fair pay. And at the very end, he makes his call to action called Turning the Tide. And against Amazon, uh, he writes, all hope is not lost, though. Hopefully some actions can be taken to help reverse these ruinous trends and the public will take notice. Rank and file NALC members, which I presume is their union, need to rise up and demand action from union officials on behalf of their suffering brothers and sisters. It's time for the NALC to prove they still have relevance in a changing work environment. It's time they set up for the entire workforce. Perhaps it's time to unsheath the one weapon which management fears the most, and which the NALC has cast to the wayside since its inception. Perhaps it's time to strike, with an exclamation point, For without us, what will be delivered? Well, let me give you a clue, folks, of what will not be delivered, and that's little piles of garbage. I've got an idea. So, I really do. I've got this great idea for a new government program. The government should design a program to solicit voluntary taxes from poor people to generate revenue, to fund programs for poor people. Then, get this, they're going to randomly bequeath to some ordinary jackass enough capital to launch a commercial airline or cure cancer. Oops, that exists already. It's called the Powerball Lottery. The poor send their money in, and then they get a tiny part of it back to fund schools, of all things. The very thing that keeps them dumb and compliant. government likes art and culture. So Winston Churchill was allegedly quoted as saying in response to whether art funds, public art funds should be cut. He said, then what are we fighting for? Now, of course, that's grandly perverted to think that you have to murder thousands and millions of people in order to maintain public funding for the art. But let's not pretend. I don't think he actually said that anyways. Uh, I'm looking on the internet and it says it's, it's a hoax. Uh, but the government does like to fund arts and culture. We have the National Endowment for the Arts, which is always sort of a famous election item when the Republicans say they're going to cut. And I, I don't—it's probably a grand total of twenty million dollars or something. I guess I could look it up and see it. But the weird thing is—is is if they do fund art, has anyone ever seen any of it? I haven't. And I actually went to art college and sort of like art quite a bit. We sort of sometimes hear about like when they sort of make fun of the program, like when they make a, a jar of piss Christ crucif- crucifix, excuse me, oh, uh, you know, where the artist is actually openly sort of making fun of any kind of uh, art that people would like and purposely uh, being disrespectful, not only to the art and then to presumably the their government sponsors, but also to all the, Christians who might take offense of a crucifix uh, made out of uh, jars of piss that this guy uh, made, you know, presumably by peeing in them. So it's just this really, really terrible, uh, bad idea to use this money. Um, and now, you know, the next guy who wants to make a splash is going to have to do something even worse. So he's going to have to take baby Jesus and make him out of jars full of his own feces, and then we can't even imagine what the next guy is going to do, to sort of tell the flip the bird at the government while taking their money, and creating some you know terrible and destructive piece of garbage. Paul Cantor has a wonderful lecture series on commerce and culture that my friend Isaac turned me on to. He you can find it online. I think it's at uh, mises.org, but just do a, a Google search for his name. It's about twenty hours long, and. So it's quite an investment but I, I found it worthwhile. It's a lot of history going all the way back to Shakespeare and Mozart. Uh, and then he even goes into modern moviemaking and stuff like that. And he, he discusses the role of, of commerce and capitalism uh, in terms of art creation. And he makes the argument that government funding of arts removes the aspects of choice and taste out of the art making process. It can basically only create create art where the people who pay for it, which I, presumably is the average taxpayer, but the taxpayer doesn't really pay for it. It's, it's just the, the politicians or the administrators, the unelected administrators who take the taxpayer money that was stolen, and then they choose to where to spend it. Uh, but the people who, who are actually footing the bill don't get to see the art, and they don't want to see it even this seems so true in practice so this art the piss, the piss thing is the only thing that we hear about uh, but not only do we not get to see it unless we really hunt it down we don't want to see it PBS public television is kind of interesting at the same same time as they're probably the only large manifestation of government funding culture that we get to see but think about the programming that they have on it I mean if we didn't have it how would rich people fund their programs on antiquing gourmet cooking, home renovation, Victorian dramas, ballet, opera, art collecting, etc. If you just look at the program guide for PBS, it's a bunch of shows for wealthy, educated people. And for some reason, that market can't afford to fund their own programming or the advertising for those uh, shows you know, wouldn't be a, a good enough segment of the population to market to because they already have a lot of money. This makes absolutely no sense. No sense, because if government, as we think of it, uh, needs to fund something for everybody uh, in a social justice type of thought process, we would think that they would be appealing to the poor or the middle class who couldn't afford to pay for the type of shows that they like. Yet somehow the market provides all the shows for these uh, these regular boobs and somehow doesn't for the wealthy people. So, again, just sort of bizarro land where the general public has to subsidize something for rich people, even though the market presumably wouldn't take care of it. Uh, even though they have. Because uh, now, you know, I just mentioned those shows, you know, like, uh, you know, antiquing or history or gourmet cooking. And there's almost a channel, a whole dedicated channel on cable for those things, anyways, making PBS pretty irrelevant. Uh, lastly, you know, what I'm. What, well, could I imagine someone arguing against like a progressive type would say well jeff the those shows are are of high culture they're substantive they're the things that the poor people and the middle class people should be watching that's why they're that's why we produce ballet that's why we produce antiquing uh or renovating old New England homes, but that's preposterous you know there's no there's no good argument for using theft that is taxation and violence to produce." Programming that people don't want to watch. Creepiness of wedge issues. Going back to the Piss Christ sculpture, have you noticed something has to be kind of yucky or icky or creepy for it to be politicized? These are called wedge issues. And they're pretty famous uh, sort of arguing points during political debates and elections. Wedge issues, which can often singularly make someone a Republican or Democrat, all have creepy or gross aspects, it seems. Think about it. Like abortion, gay rights, stem cells, anchor babies. Everything seems to involve blood, semen, and orifices. Now, is this on purpose? Do we need to be grossed out a little bit to be political? Probably so. Probably so. Strangers who live a thousand miles away. So in political discourse, it seems everyone is really fascinated about what strangers a thousand miles away either do or think about. Why do we desire policy for these people, these strangers who live a thousand miles away? And why do they want policy for us? Like people in Texas or what people in Colorado are doing. I live in South Carolina. Do I really even need to care about what people two towns away from me are doing, or even the guy who lives down the street? And yet in politics, all of a sudden, I should have a grand opinion of what someone in Texas is doing or what someone in Colorado is doing, or not allowed to do. But then it gets really weird. So we maybe we really care about poor people in Chicago or Colorado, and we feel like we have to feed them, or we worry about uh, people in Colorado being able to smoke marijuana uh, when they really shouldn't. And this is all not. This isn't just from peer to peer, like us normal folks talking politics, but it's right. You know, in the, those sort of high offices of Congress. And during campaigns that we always hear about how some group of people in Massachusetts have a big opinion about what happens in Texas or vice versa. But then once we go, you know, a foot below the border in Texas, uh, or if we think about people in Canada or Bolivia or in Ethiopia, uh, we really just stop giving a shit. Uh, we don't We don't feel the need to—we feel, feel this great desire politically to make sure everybody's got this certain amount of food to eat uh, or, you know, doesn't ingest uh, a certain weed or raw milk. As soon as you put them over in uh, Kazakhstan, you know, we really could just not give a shit. So really, you know, all this sort of social justice is just randomly sort of built around this thing that we can, you know, vote for. You know this sort of arbitrary line of people and that can be very frustrating because it's like why do we you know care about these people and don't care about these other people and then why do we insist on uh, making these people uh, who we don't know do things or even you know accept having to be made to do things from another group of strangers a thousand miles away but there's you know pundits on tv uh, who say you know dumb stuff and they're just strangers who live a thousand miles away. In fact, everyone in Washington, D.C., all the politicians and all even, even the, uh, the four million non-elected uh, members of the U.S. federal government uh, are all strangers who live a thousand miles away, too. You know what? To hell with these strangers. Or rather, you know, who cares? Who knows? They're strangers who live really far away. Why should we give a shit? Partisan Dog Poop Gourmets. Imagine a group of like minded people who thought of themselves as fine gourmet chefs who make delicious and creative food. They strive to be the best cooks they possibly can be, preparing the best food available anywhere. But instead of practicing new cooking techniques, trying new ingredients, or working to improve their own recipes, they walk around the yard, taking bites of dog shit. And every time they put the hot, disgusting mess in their mouth, they spit it out, point at it, and say, "Ew, that tastes terrible! Then, they go find another turd and munch on. Now, would you find this productive? Because this is very much how partisan media pundits seem to express their political opinions. For example, if one is an outspoken Democrat, he or she feels satisfied by placing about 99% of his or her political energy hunting down something terrible a Republican has said and declaring it awful. And there's no short supply of terrible things Republicans say in the news. It's not just the media. Too many regular folk are like this too. Go to Facebook or an internet discussion board to see people routinely finding some piece of shit that they didn't want to eat and declaring it bad. There's no end to these terrible comments. If they can't find one from a prominent politician or a news commentator, they settle for some junior Republican state selectman nobody's ever heard of. And if this person doesn't say something bad on a particular day, they'll even find some stranger dummy who had enough money to buy a bumper sticker or type something on the Internet. They really don't care where it's from, just as long as it's awful and they can taste it and say it's terrible. And this makes them upset, violently angry. If some dumb stranger who lives a thousand miles away says something ugly or stupid, why would anyone care? Why give somebody so much power over your emotions? The conservatives do it right back, and just as badly. So all of these people expressing political opinions are essentially walking around looking for some piece of shit that they'll declare is not tasty. I wish to say that this was limited to just dummies on Facebook, but there are whole sites dedicated to it. For example, look at HuffingtonPost.com, Alternet.org, DailyCost.com, or RedState.com, and entire major cable news networks, all tirelessly finding lumps of poo for their audience to declare unsavory. It's never about creating something good or making something better that you already have within you, but just identifying something that's bad and something that's bad that's external from you. Just imagine if instead they turned inward to their preferred ideas and worked hard to develop them, like if they worked to build their political theories to the best that they could be envisioned. They would hold up their political ideas to rigorous assessments and criticisms using a methodology, and talk in terms such as ethics, history, economics, and outcomes. Sure, people would still come up with imperfect and even wrong answers, but the conversations would be so much richer, and the ideas would get better. Libertarians can be guilty of sampling some turds, for sure, but boy can they exhaust themselves criticizing each other, doing insane insane amounts of studying, and probably look more inward than any other group with a political worldview. I'm not personally a fan of either partisan view or government at all, but I would prefer it if people stopped tasting so much shit. Maybe I'm guilty of tasting a little poop myself in this blog, but in pointing out a fault, I'm hopefully pointing out an opportunity too. Bon appétit.
1: Well, I know some people don't like you to talk about those things. I know that. Some people don't like you to mention certain things. Some people don't want you to say this. Some people don't want you to say that. Some people think if you mention some things, they might happen. Some people are really fucking stupid. (laughs) Did you ever notice that? How many really stupid people you run into during the day? god damn there's a lot of stupid bastards walking around <laughs> carry a little pad and pencil with you you wind up with 30 or 40 names by the end of the day look at it this way think of how stupid the average person is and then realize half of them are stupider than that <laughs> and it doesn't take you very long to spot one of them does it take you about eight seconds you'll be listening to some guy you see, this guy is fucking stupid <laughs> Then, then there are some people, they're not stupid, they're full of shit. (laughs) Uh, That doesn't take very long to spot either, does it? Take you about the same amount of time. You'll be listening to some guy and say, well, he's fairly intelligent. Ah, He's full of shit. Then there are some people, they're not stupid, they're not full of shit, they're fucking nuts!
0: Okay, that's enough of that. That was George Carlin, I'm not sure what year, I just found that on YouTube, and uh, rest in peace, George Carlin. This piece is called Enough Idiots to Get the Job Done. So I read an internet post on popularliberty.com that was really lamenting Jeb Bush getting in as a candidate for the president, and they especially lamented that there could not possibly be enough idiots to vote him in as the Republican nominee. If you look at most politicians, though, are there really enough idiots to vote anybody in? They all seem pretty disingenuous, megalomaniacal, selfish, and stupid. If we presume voting works like we're told, I think there may be enough idiots. Remember what George Carlin said, you know, if the average person is pretty stupid, half the population are even stupider than they are. According to the Washington Post, only 36.4% of Americans voted in the last election, and that's about one out of three people. Of these total voters, half of them were probably Republicans. In fact, there were probably more than half, because this was a midterm election where the Republicans largely won you know their house and congressional seats. So that makes one out of six Americans. So it only takes about 18 percent of the votes to get somebody the Republican nomination. That's less than one out of five. So again, as George Carlin said, the average person is pretty stupid, which means half of all people are stupider than that. That's half just half, half of all people. But let's take just the bottom quintile. They must be really stupid. Idiots, even. Well, that's 20% idiots, more than the 18% we need to get the politician elected. Apparently, there is enough idiots. Congratulations, Jeb Bush. Is the First Amendment bullshit? Now, calm down, because I know everybody thinks the First Amendment is this wonderful rights-protecting clause of a magical document we call the Constitution. And people will even claim that a soldier's duty is to fight to protect our rights, such as the freedom of speech. Here's the actual text of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So essentially among other things, the government says you're allowed to talk. Well big whoop. I mean, I get this historical context. That free speech rights uh, were not always granted to people, and it was a terrible thing—censorship, and you know, people would be uh, beheaded or whatever so for saying the wrong thing. And uh, and really, between you know, it's hard to say we even really have the right today because between political correctness, hate speech laws, campaign finance laws, and the government owning and regulating the airwaves for eighty years or so, we don't have it here either. But really, talking—we're supposed to be happy that they allow us to talk so what about other things that we aren't explicitly given permission for like permission to pick out our own clothes or permission to eat breakfast when we want or even permission to pick what we want to have for breakfast and then eat it when we want or permission to use the bathroom when and as frequently as we want where in this magic document are the rights outlined that we're allowed to go to the bathroom when we want where is it in this magic document that we're permitted to pick out the clothes and pick out the breakfast we will eat. And you know what would be really badass is if they had a, uh, an amendment that says that we could make the heavy metal goat sign with our fingers and shake it when we're at an Ozzy Osbourne concert. So really, when you think about this, do we need this First Amendment, this gross and clumsy permission to do something as basic as talking? The sinister part of this is that we decide to appreciate the First Amendment, Then we concede that our rights to talk came from the government, even though we would find it preposterous if they said that we had the right to pick out our clothes or take a dump when it was convenient. Think about it. It means that when the government allows you to do something, they're essentially saying that it's up to them to either give it to you or to deny it to you. It's a power grab. And it it doesn't seem so bad, because maybe maybe because we were taught in school or maybe because we don't see the, the speech being taken away, but if they were to to actually say you're allowed to go to the bathroom when you wanted or you're allowed to pick out your own breakfast, we'd probably be pretty outraged that they thought they had that power to say that they're giving us that right. So let me answer the question I posed at the beginning of this segment. Is the First Amendment bullshit? Yep. Yeah.
1: Since I wrote a song for the ladies, I'd have to do one for the guys as well. So guys... This song is for you. Now let me set this up a little bit guys. This is a song about, you know when you're out at the bar and you see that girl across the bar she's kind of looking at you that's right, you're looking at her and you got the eye contact and you know if you play your cards right,
0: things are going to go okay that night that's what this song's about. And uh, Ty's going to help me sing it. It's called She got a Smile. Here we go. <laughs> is
1: that what it's called? It is tonight, yes. <laughs> Alright. Here we go. She got a smile, yeah, she got a smile, and she flashing it right at me. She got a wink, a wink across the bar, and I know that it's meant to be. She got a walk, tight, she walking over, and I think it could be my day. She got a... Ooh, she's got a friend Why she's standing in her way. It's a big fat friend. Oh, God, there's always big one. fat friend. To spoil my freaking fun. Now, baby, 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 if it's boots you want to knock, leave your chubbly friend at home because she's going to block the car. Now, I'm afraid of no man with any i but I cannot compete. Would you be fat? Friend? <laughs> yeah, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the opening act now? Bia! <laughs> so, big fat friend. Ah, we meet again. You won't leave her alone. You roll your eyes, make sarcastic comments while you're sucking on that chicken bone. Oh, yeah, but that's okay. You think you won the battle, but I tend to disagree. See, I know you and your Achilles heel, and he's standing next to me, my non-discriminating friend. So what? That's your account. Non-discriminating friend. i fuck you anyhow. That's right. Come here, will. baby. Well, I know he smells like whiskey and he's had a couple rounds. But with every of Yeager, hey, you lose a couple pounds. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. Baby, 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 bring the evening to an end. Just you and me and my pal, and your big fat. You and me and my pal, and your big fat. You and me and my pal, and your big fat. You and me and my pal, and your big fat. You and me and my pal.
0: pal. So that was my friend, Stephen Lynch, who is also a roommate in college and is now a professional comedian. Uh, sort of famous. He, if he was playing that, I think, about six or seven years ago. Anyway, this next piece is called The Constitution and Her Big Fat Friend. For many, like constitutional conservatives or paleoconservatives, the Constitution is seen as a great achievement, at least in theory and at least in its inception, as being a rule of law that succinctly limits government. The Constitution is considered an ideal. The law of the land is attractive. It's a win. In fact, most people go through school and learn to idolize the Constitution to some extent. Even liberals get excited when the Supreme Court finds something like the ACA or gay marriage to be approved by the Constitution. It's like, yes, the limited government has spoken. Of course, this is a naked call to authority. The Constitution was never really a power limiter, but always a power grab. The power didn't exist before. The Constitution made up the power it was going to supposedly limit. And the Constitution was probably so heavy-handed in power control framing just for the purpose of making it less scary to be accepted by the couple dozen men who made the decision. So again, it was a power grab described as a power limiter. Very clever. It's a little like you buy a car and then your neighbor approaches you with some terms and how they are going to use it. You immediately protest that he doesn't have any rights to your car. Ah, but he says, he comes back and says, here's a document that says I can only use this one day per week and during lunch time. And here are the checks that make sure I don't change the arrangement. Ah, but here's the clause that I can amend it at any time. And here's another that says I can also do whatever I need for the good of the car. But let's forget that ugly kind of thinking and go with the popular meme that the Constitution is a noble and concise rule of law that profoundly limits government. And at just a few pages long, it fits the bill. But if the Constitution is truly the law of the land, what is the role of her big fat friend? By this I mean the U.S. Code of Law. If you go to the website uscode.house.gov, the U.S. Code is divided into 54 sections. To go through them as quickly as I can. They are Title I, General Provisions, Title II, The Congress, Title Three The President, Title IV, Flag and Seal, Seat of Government and the States, Title V, Government Organization and Employees, and the Appendix, Title VI, Domestic Security, uh, Title Seven Agriculture, Title Eight Aliens and Nationality, Title IX, Arbitration, Title X, Armed Forces, Title Eleven Bankruptcy with an Appendix, Title Twelve Banks and Banking. Title 13, Census. Title 14, Coast Guard. Title 15, Commerce and Trade. Title 16, Conservation. Title 17, Copyrights. Title 18, Crimes and Criminal Procedure. Title 19, Customs, Duties. Title 20, Education. Title 21, Food and Drugs. Title 22, Foreign Relations and Intercourse. Oh, that sounds provocative. Title 23, Highways. Title 24, Hospitals and Asylums title 25 indians title 26 internal revenue code 20 title 27 intoxicating liquors title 28 judiciary judicial judicial procedure with an appendix title 29 labor 2030 Minerals and Lands and Mining, Title 31, Money and Finance, Title 32, National Guard, Title 33, Navigation and Navigable Waters, Title 35, Patents, Title 36, Patriotic and National Observances, Ceremonies and Organizations, very important there, Title 37, Pay and Allowances of the Uniform Services, Title 38, Veterans Benefits, Title 39, Postal Service, also little piles of garbage, Title 40, public buildings, property, and works. Title 41, public contracts. Title 42, the public health and welfare. Title 43, public lands. Title 44, printing public printing and documents. Title 45, railroads. Title 46, shipping. Title 47, telecommunications. Title 48, territories and insular possessions. Title 49, transportation. Title 50, war and national defense. Title 51, national and commercial space programs. Title 52, Voting and Elections. Title 53 is reserved. Okay, that's unusual. Title 54, National Park Service and Related Programs. So that's the scope of the U.S. Code, the Big Fat Fringe, which seems a little bit more than the few pages that the holy and noble Constitution has. As far as maybe perhaps limiting power and giving rights and doing all that nasty stuff, um, if I click on one of these on the website, and you can go through it, it's all here. Like say war and national defense, I get forty eight more chapters under that single heading. So there's fifty four titles. I click on one, I get forty eight more chapters. If I click on a sub chapter, I'm given six to a dozen more. So it's fifty four. Uh, Tier 1, 48 on the next, 6 to a dozen more on the third tier, and under there are more sections. And then eventually I just got, I don't know if I even got to a point where I actually got to read a law, but just categories of laws. The tax code alone, one of the the 54 titles, is rumored to be about 70,000 pages long. So I, I did try to do multiple Google searches, and I couldn't find a total page count. So that's, again, rumored to be 70,000 pages, uh, but can't be verified. One listing in Google I read says that in 1982, they conducted a project to see how many criminal laws there were. And so I'm presuming that's just the, the criminal section. I don't know if you remember me saying that. It was like in the, the mid part of the title readout. And so they did a formal project that I think lasted three years uh, just to make a catalog of how many criminal laws there were in the code. And so this is an actual blog post from the Library of Congress. So it's them reporting on themselves. And I'm, I'm reading this. At the reference desk, we are frequently asked to estimate the number of federal laws in force. However, trying to tally this number is nearly impossible. If you think the answer to this question can be found in the volumes of the Statutes at large, you are partially correct. The statutes at large is a compendium that includes all the federal laws passed by the U.S. Congress. However, a total count of laws passed does not account for the fact that some laws are completely new, some are passed to amend existing laws, and others completely repeal old laws. Moreover, the set does not include any case law or regulatory provisions that have the force of law. In an example of a failed attempt to tally up the number of laws on a specific subject area, in 1982, the Justice Department... Okay, 82. So this is 30, 35, 33 years ago. In 1992, the Justice Department tried to determine the total number of criminal laws. In a project that lasted two years, sorry, not three, the department compiled a list of approximately 3,000 criminal offenses. This effort, headed by Ronald Gaynor, a Justice Department official, is considered the most exhaustive attempt to count the number of federal criminal laws. In a Wall Street Journal article about this project, This effort came as part of a long and ultimately failed campaign to persuade Congress to revise the criminal code, which by the 1980s was scattered among 50 titles and 23 pages of federal law. Or, as Mr. Gaynor characterized this fruitless project, you will have died and been resurrected three times and still not have an answer to this question. Wow. Wow. so, wow, there's, there's the limit of law, right? It's just a tidy three pages of Constitution, but forgets about its big fat friend. So, but how, how big do we think the big fat friend might be? If we take the 1982 criminal code estimate of 23,000 pages and assume there's been more added in the past 33 years, the tax code at 70,000, and let's sort of pick a number in between and assume maybe 50,000 pages per title, this is a rough average, just for simple math. The total code would be 2,700,000 pages of law. Holy shit. Well, so much for the Constitution-limiting government. Just look at her big fat friend. This has several implications. One, law is virtually unlimited, or at least has demonstrated to be. Two, law is arbitrary. Apparently nothing is beyond its scope. And three, the law is unknowable even if the tome was a puny 10,000 pages like uh, not even like 1% of what it is now no man could know what crimes are out there and let's, let's lastly remember that this is all funded and enforced by violence there's not a single law out of all the two, you know the 2,700,000 pages that isn't an act or a threat of violence in some way The excuses for government violence are virtually limitless. You
1: and me and my pal. You 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 and me and my pal. Stop, stop, stop. Come here. Come here, you big fat fucker.
0: Come here. Respecting the rapist. I was talking with a guy, a friend of mine, who really likes the government, and he thought that the government could do a a better job spending money than the Walmart family, also known as the Walton family, could with their net worth. He thought it would be okay to use violence to take their money to do something good, like to build a bridge or something like that. Now, this is despite the fact that the Walton's worth... In other words, its ownership of Walmart stores is currently supplying half the country with hard goods, clothes, electronics, and groceries. But let's forget that for a second. The government also does bad things when you give them money. Perhaps the Walmart's money would be used to buy bombs to kill children with, or used to expand prisons. Maybe they'd use the money to bail out bankers, give subsidies to corn producers, or launch domestic spying programs. Maybe they would shift the money to despots in third world countries in order for them to buy weapons. Or maybe they would just blow it on art nobody sees and TV programs for rich people. Or like you said, it could be used to build a bridge. But this just means the wealth gets transferred from Walmart, one stranger, to another stranger, the contractor who built bridges. Ah, but people somewhere would get to use the bridge. Of course, if the Walmarts were to build a Walmart, some people somewhere would get to use that too. What we do know, though, is that Walmarts are voluntary and handing out bridge contracts are not. It's done through violence. Going back to the bad stuff a government could do with stolen money, it's funny how some people can have contradicting or bifurcated views of the government. It's like there's a man who likes to rape and beat people on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday But on Tuesday and Thursday, he gives out ice cream to children and sings songs at the elderly home. Would you call this a good man? Like, we should give him more resources since he gives out ice cream and sings songs? Or do you think, wow, that guy is awful. He's an evil person. Or do you think, boy, I'd like that guy a lot better without all the raping and beating. I'll ask him to change, even though he never has in all of human history. Keep in mind, The man in question first steals the ice cream to hand out, and attendance to his voice recitals are mandatory. This is respecting the rapist. This is thinking that government can do good when you give them more money. Moral heroism when government stops being bad. Have you ever noticed how happy and proud people get when the government stops doing something really shitty? Take, for example, slavery or ending Jim Crow laws. They're considered high moral points in history because government stopped acting immorally. All they did, though, was get out of a hole. They didn't actually do a good thing. This is the same with ending pot criminality, allowing blacks and whites to get married, or letting gay people get married. On the last one, which was a recent event at the federal level, many people on Facebook showed a picture of the White House with rainbow lights on it. The White House was celebrating... That after, you know, two or three hundred years, they were going to stop being dicks to a certain segment of the population. It was gloating for finally stopping something it thought it was doing badly. But let's take our rapist beater from before. Does he get to be a moral hero if he stops those activities? Now, surely he's more net moral than he used to be. But he's still a relative moral shitbag compared to somebody who never raped or beat in the first place it's almost like the government is blaming a third party for the bad things that it does and then the government comes to the rescue to stop it even though it was just stopping itself it's like if i beat my children every day and when i stop i tell my children to thank me because i stopped the bad man who was beating them and then stupidly they thank me because i'm a hero when the government stops doing something bad it shouldn't boast about winning but instead offer a big fat apology and beg for forgiveness Like, I'm sorry I was a sadistic jerk to you for the last 200 years, but I've learned my lesson and I'm really sorry. Here's a gift card to Applebee's to make up for it. I hope you can forgive me. And then people should look back at the government and say, fuck you and your Applebee's gift card. Start acting good all the time, for a long time, and then we'll talk. The benign government replacement program, or the BGRP. The politicians, the bureaucrats, the employees, the soldiers, and the contractors, etc. that work for the government really don't want to leave, be downsized, or lose their salaries. They are going to fight tooth and nail to keep government as big and murderous as it is. They need the money. They need our money. Why in the world would they ever want to give up their jobs, give up their livelihoods, give up their revenue? just for the sake of some political ideology like libertarianism. It's wholesale ridiculous. But goodness gracious is the government capable of doing some really horrid things. The U.S. government is the largest agency of mass murder in the world and spends over half of the world's military budget on things to kill people. The U.S.'s prison population is the biggest in the world and perhaps the largest in all history. It has one of the premier children indoctrination programs going on with our public school system. And it hires ex-military to bring little piles of garbage to everybody's house on a daily basis. The anti-government crusader, the libertarian, the anarchist, is up a near impossible battle to win by political means. Boys and girls, we simply can't do it with voting. We can't talk our way out of it. We can't send them books that they have to read and come to new ideas, we're not going to debate them out of their jobs. Face it, they're just not going to quit. They need that money. They need that livelihood. They need to feed their families. What if, knowing that we can't stop them, we were instead to negotiate with them? We'd throw up our hands in the air and say, look, we know you need your money. We know you got to keep your job. How about this? You continue to take our money and you get a paycheck, but you really have to stop doing the bad things. We promise to stop complaining about being taxed. You get paid, but you stop being bad, and then we'll call it a day. I call this the benign government replacement program, or the BGRP. It works something like this. We take any branch of government that looks like it's doing explicitly something harmful, and make it do something marginally useful or at least less harmful so while the National Endowment for Arts is creating the piss Christ uh, sculptures we'll probably just let them keep doing that uh, NASA if they want to continue to uh, you know blow up rockets or you know have have Mars probes go that's fine everybody gets their paycheck uh, you know some of these things are going to be on the fence, like what about the FDA. You know, how much harm is caused by making drug development cost billions uh, while withholding potential life-saving drugs from the market for decades? How many people die from that? Uh, You know, or what about just the general lack of prosperity caused by having so much money tied up in bureaucracy? So there's sort of like shades of gray in here. Uh, Some of them, you know, like the military, they're just going out and wholesale putting bullets in people and dropping bombs on their homes. So that's like Really, really evil. And then, uh, you know, on the other side, there's this group of people who we've already talked about who are dropping little piles of garbage in everyone's front yard, and maybe they're really not hurting that, you know, people that much. So, anyways, I would say we do kind of a triage and pick the biggest opportunities to stop evil, uh, even though it will continue to be funded by taxes uh, in this grand negotiation where the anti-government people finally throw up. Their hands give up and say you can keep your job you just have to stop doing bad so the first is the soldiers and the military so what I suggest is that we stop all wars overseas and close all the bases and then bring you know bring them all home bring all the troops home and so that will pretty much stop all the really bad stuff that they can do now since uh, they are young people they like sort of that cool military thing I say we just let them hang out on base and watch the helicopters. Uh, if they still want to shoot some guns, we can set up a range, or um, they can play battle games on uh, Xbox or Splatoon on the Wii U. Uh, or if they want to really run around, because I know they're probably high energy and uh, you know need to get, get some um, energy out, they can play paintball. Uh, if they signed up for, to do it for college, which supposedly a lot of soldiers do, I say, you know, let them take some courses or even go full time. Uh, maybe even pay their uh, tuition since they were going to get that anyways. Or even if they want to sign up for the military, get their military paycheck, and they want to go during the day and get a paying job, you know, uh, mowing lawns or, or you know, uh, making Subway sandwiches or, or working in an office or whatever, uh, still let them get their ranks and their army pay and then let them be productive members of the economy and let them keep that money too. You know, this isn't going to cost, this is all revenue neutral. It's not going to cost us any more as part of the deal. Uh, But it'll ensure that they're not hurting uh, any more people. Okay, next up. The military industrial complex. First, uh, their part of the bargain is they have to stop making weapons and bombs and drones and such and all these other implements of mass murder. I think right there uh, will be all that they have to give up. Now, now we're going to have all these engineers and these factories and these uh, uh, manufacturing assets and all, the, all this other stuff, These all these smart people who, who know how to design and, and manufacture things. Uh, so I say we put them on projects like developing flying cars um, or maybe just really just some other cars like hot rods that people could drive around the neighborhood uh, or golf carts and they could even sell them and offset some of the expense that they were taking from the taxpayer. Now, wouldn't that be cool? Uh, or the US could subsidize commercial aircraft and make them cheaper for airlines. And then we could, uh, maybe as consumers, would be able to take a vacation for a little bit less on our plane tickets. Uh, you know, I think what would be really cool is that maybe these MIC guys, they could build a bus line that flies and makes little short stops at little tiny uh, Airbus airports. And then we could all travel more quickly. I think this would be better than. I know some people uh, think a national railroad is, is the answer to better transportation, but wouldn't it be cooler if there was just like a bus stop, uh, a plane lands there, um, you know, maybe it's, it's got a couple dozen seats, and then it only flies to the next bus stop, you know, which is only like 50 miles away. But, you, you know, you could get from uh, Charleston to Orlando in about, you know, 45 minutes at best. Um, if the MIC still, I mean, they probably have some guys who are still red, white, and blue and still want to really blow shit up. And I say, fine, fine, let's let them do it in the desert. They can make stuff uh, or they could even take some of the, the crap that they already made that, that, you know, presumably sometimes works and doesn't. Um, and then they can make bombs to blow them up. And there it goes. They get to blow, blow things up and uh, still have their, their jollies. So anyway, just as long as they're making stuff, they're not making stuff to kill people, we can let them keep their paychecks. Okay, now on to the prison system. Okay, so for their part of giving up the bad things, let's stop locking people up. Agreed? Cool. Uh, First, let's release all the nonviolent prisoners, and for most of the rest, let's see if they can be rehabilitated somehow. Uh, so that they can provide restitution to whoever they've wronged. Uh, You know, it's it's unfortunate. The victims of a theft or or an assault or something uh, never probably get restitution. They just get to see their their attacker or whatever put in jail. Uh, Maybe some of the prison space can be converted into therapy clinics for rehabilitation, you know, anger management training, uh, uh, psychological therapy, etc., uh, and then some of the places could be maybe um, we could have businesses move in and they could the prisoners could make money to pay back whoever they've wronged. And then if the guards and wardens still need something to do to earn their pay, they could redecorate the cells, upgrade the kitchen, make the common areas nicer, take down some of the fences and some of the other nasty stuff like that, and let poor or old people live there. Uh, now on to the judicial systems and the lawyers. So now that we don't have the need to imprison so many people, the judges and lawyers can be paid to follow their real interests they had before the dumb idea to go to law school. Ta-da! Okay, the police. Uh, So the police, for their part, they can stop going around arresting and shooting people for drug offenses and perhaps focus on protecting property and tracking it down after it's stolen so they can give it back to the owners. Uh, If that's too much work, then... I'm fine with them just hanging out at the donut shop, or uh, they can just hang out at the station and play cards. That's fine with me. Okay, now on to the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. I guess as part of this supposed deal, the government would still need revenue to pay everybody not to suck so hard. So I guess the IRS would still be tasked with what they do today. Um. So I, I guess uh, let them have their shitty jobs. They're already in their own hell. Uh, as a personal note, I think the IRS might be one of my least favorite organizations uh, just because I pay a lot of taxes. Okay, next, the TSA. So this is this is probably my most creative idea, but I think we should pay them to be like dunk tank clowns at airports. Uh, if you know that, if you've ever been to one of those sort of cheap... Uh, towny carnivals where a clown sits in a tank over water and then for you know a dollar you get three baseballs to throw at a target and if you hit it the clown then plunks into the water so i think that would be good they could still they could dress funny and sit above the dunking tanks and kids could throw baseballs at the lever and have them fall in while they wait to get on their planes i don't know if you've ever been to an airplane, uh, airport with really young children but they have a really hard time keeping themselves uh, occupied and not too bored. I think having clowns around the airport that they could dunk into a tank would really be a boon for everybody's travel experience. Uh, in addition, if they wanted to still have uh, those Captain Crunch epaulets that they wear on their uniforms that make them look so official, I, I think they could still, still do that. They could still give out t- uh, stickers to the kids, which they currently already do. Uh, I know I always feel proud when I see my kid wearing a TSA agent sticker on their on their shirt. And uh, with the money they make from charging a dollar per throw, they would make a little income and, and offset some of their own cost. So that might even be a little bit of savings for the government. I think that'd be pretty cool. Okay, lastly, the Postal Service, who I've harped on in this series quite a bit already. So again, instead of dropping off little piles of garbage to everybody's house, maybe they can go out and pick up garbage. After all, they like wearing shorts and walking around the neighborhood anyways. But really, I I don't want to make it too hard on them. Uh, Maybe they only have to do that for like an hour a day. And then the rest of the day, they can hang out at the post office playing cards and drinking beer or doing video games or playing darts or We can even buy them pool tables uh, since, you know, we can sell off some of their trucks. Uh, And then, you know, on those rare occasions when somebody needs to get a birthday card or a phone bill delivered, we can have one of them deliver some mail. Getting Money Out of Politics On presidential candidate Bernie Sanders' website, one of his key issues is getting big money out of politics. He's focusing on election funds. But I say let's go further. Let's get all big money out of politics. Let's start with the IRS, the Federal Reserve, and whatever financial mismanagers borrow money on behalf of the government. I have a feeling the election spending would dry up in quick order if this happened. (laughs) Does the veto make the president a king? In school, they teach us to be pretty jazzed about how the fact that the government is set up according to the Constitution and that there's lots of checks and balances to control abuses in power. Presumably, everybody wants power so, so much that they will work to protect theirs by stopping other people's. And this creates an integral system of checks and balances so that no branch ever up, uh, oversteps their ability to take over government or sort of work arbitrarily. They also make a big deal that this is a republic, and it's it's democratic, and there's rule of law instead of a divine rule of a king. This is like a huge story that they tell us in uh, elementary school and and middle school and high school that the formation of our government is the exact antithesis to a divinely chosen royalty king, emperor uh, God king. Of course, we know that the Constitution's big, fat friend is sprawling that rule of law, and it's arbitrary and not limiting at all. So that myth is kind of broken right there, that it's a limitation. So what about this king idea, this king idea that, we've, that the noble republic of the United States has done away with so smartly and acutely? So let's forget about a minute about all that, uh, the big, fat friend and all the sprawl. And let's just think about the legal check and balance that gives the president the power to veto. The veto is a wonderful way for the president to check Congress's power. It means he can say no to legislation that passed just based on his own whim and judgment. But if we think about this, if he has the power to say no to something, it must mean every other time he's saying yes. So if the president can just say yes or no to everything, doesn't that mean he's ultimately deciding everything? Doesn't that make him a king or a dictator? I know he doesn't write the law himself, not usually, but what executive does that kind of work himself? Uh, any any executive, free market or government or otherwise, always delegates, delegates that task to their toadies. Uh, and I know there's a procedural way a complex procedural way, of reversing the veto with a certain number of congressional votes. But those are really exceptions. I mean, that's not really what happens day to day. Uh, that's not how you get 2,700,000 pages of code uh, written and approved and, and made law. Regardless, we just hear about this as in school, as if it's this great check and balance when really it might be just be the wrappings of total power admiration for the murderer how many killings could a person endorse command or enable before we think that they might be an immoral person I was driving with my kids the other day and I asked them this question and they all agreed without pause, that it would be just one. One person killed, and the person who endorsed or enabled it, would not only be a bad person, but an evil one. I've talked to people who have said that they have admired this president, or this Washington politician. Like some say about the president, he's my guy. Here's a meme I saw today on Facebook. Had a picture of the the royal family, okay, the the presidential family, rather, Uh, and it said, America's first family, first to be scandal-free in 30 years, Uh, I guess if we ignore Fast and Furious or Benghazi or a couple other things, Uh, no drunken children, totally wholesome family, hated by most white Christians. Now, I'm not really sure that's true, since uh, the president did get elected by a majority of voters, um, most of which are probably white Christians. Uh, because of the color of their skin, not because of the content of their character. So just to put that together. Hated by most white Christians because of the color of their skin and not the content of the character. yet you can guess who I'm talking about. But this guy. So that was like talking about the content of their character. But think about this. This guy, just like the guy before him, have endorsed, commanded, and enabled not just one murder, but hundreds or even thousands of murders. This all goes the same for your favorite congressman, if you have one. Which means, these politicians are evil on the grandest scale, and completely and totally undeserving of any admiration or pride. Evil is to be shamed, shunned, and destroyed. There are no smiles or admiration in our funny government. Just little piles of garbage. And just plain pure evil.